Hello, and welcome to the first episode of the Scottish Review of Books podcast. I'm Christian Kerr, and I'm delighted to be joined by Alan Taylor, who has edited the magazine for the whole of its 12-year history. In this episode, we'll be talking about the Emerging Critics Programme. This is a pilot project to nurture new voices in cultural criticism, and it's a partnership between the Scottish Review of Books and Creative Scotland. From now until early 2017, 20 individuals will be mentored in small groups by some of the finest critics working in Scotland today. So, Alan, by way of introduction, could you say a little bit about the origin of this project um, and the current landscape of literary criticism in Scotland? Um, this January, for example, sees the bicentenary of the Scotsman, founded in 1817, um, and founded, in fact, under the banner, the Scotsman or the Edinburgh Political and Literary Journal. And in fact, the Scotsman itself was founded as a reaction to a, a perceived crisis in criticism that the great reviews of the period, the Edinburgh and the Quarterly, were too politically, politically partisan. Um, today, at the beginning of the 21st century, um, there's both a new vibrancy in the formats and voices that are currently engaged in cultural criticism and a series of new challenges. How do these look from where you are? Well, I'm not sure that there's a crisis uh, at this outset of the 21st century, but there does seem to be a dearth of new young critics coming through. Uh, and I'm not sure what the reason for that actually is. Uh, it may have something to do with the way people are being educated or it may have something to do with the rise of creative writing classes, uh, which emphasise the writing of fiction or poetry uh, rather than criticism. Uh, I think if someone previously went to university and did an English literature course, criticism would be pretty high up on their agenda. Um, and this uh, project, which, as you say, Christian, uh, is in cooperation with Creative Scotland, partly is due, its origins partly due to a report that Creative Scotland did into the state of literature in the country. And one of its recommendations was to explore uh, means to encourage, mentor, tutor new young critics who might take us forward into the next generation. And that's the basis of it. Um, but I think it's a much broader thing in general. A, a small country like Scotland uh, which is either unbelievably self-critical or incredibly apt in, uh, at uh, backslapping and uh, congratulating itself, needs people who can stand back and who have the courage and the tools, the eloquence, uh, to be able to articulate what is right about some piece of writing and what's wrong about some piece of writing. Uh, and I say the courage because in a small country, as soon as you criticise somebody, you bump into them in the street or in a, a party or somewhere like that, as I in invariably do. It's a small world. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. So um, I, I think um, I think that's an interest. I think it's interesting to think about the the, the training. Um, of a critic if there's a dearth of these voices now um, and um, that possibly the structure of a university um, and the, all the options available there um, could be could be changing things I mean what, what's your sense of um, a traditional sort of 
ed- is there such a thing as the traditional education of a critic? Though? Well, I, in, insofar as um, in the past people read a, a text and, and gave their response to it, there, there was a tradition. Um, you know, the first thing to say about criticism, um, because it, it's given a bad uh, press, as it were, is that you know it's born out of enthusiasm. Um, a critic uh, doesn't set out to hate something, they set out to love something. That when we all open a book, we're praying that that book will be wonderful. But as you grow older and wiser, or have read more, uh, you begin to become more critical. Your antennae is a bit sharper and you begin to look at books, texts, poems in, in a different kind of light. And you begin to see what might be right and what might be wrong with them. Now whether there's a perfect uh, way to produce uh, critics is, is another matter. I mean, the first thing you need to do is read lots um, because you, you yourself edu- self-educate and uh, you get better at spotting what's good and bad. Uh, when I was younger, uh, much younger, um, you know, the Saturday supplements, the books pages, the literary pages, the arts pages, uh, were the pages one turned to first, before the sports pages even. Um, and you read the kind of great critics of the day. In my time, the, the great critics of the day were uh, V.S. Pritchett, Frank Kermode, um, people of that ilk, you know. Um, and did they all have regular regular columns in regular papers? Yes, um, Anthony Burgess was uh, the, the mainstay for a long time weekly of The Observer. Um, you know, when I bought The New Yorker, um, my heart leapt when John Updike uh, was reviewing. Um, and these were both creative writers and critics who right. did not uh, shy from putting their opinions down on the pages. And then came another generation of writer-critics, of the Christopher Hitchens, uh, Martin Amos, Julian Barnes uh, brigade, who were not them, themselves afraid to go into print and to say what was right or wrong about yeah. something. You know, I can still remember phrases uh, written by the, uh, the likes of Clive James, who would say things like, of a bestseller by Shirley Conran, <laughs> she tells us everything we don't need to know. Um, or writing of Torval and Dean, the ice skaters, uh, in some championship, dancing to that bolero. And he said that they looked like two packets of Benson and Hedges dancing in a fridge. You know, those, the, right. the, that was as good as anything you could get anywhere. So a critic would, 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 be, would have a very distinctive voice. Um, and a huge following. Right, you know? and that would draw readers to a paper. Absolutely, in, and, in and if you watched stars. a TV programme or you read a book, yeah. um, you would uh, turn avidly to the pages to see what the likes of those guys thought of it. And the same, to a degree, pertained in Scotland. The, the books pages of the Scotsman and the Herald were the ones you turned to first. And that when someone like Alan Massey, for example, uh, nailed his colours to the mast and said he liked something or thought it was a step forward in Scottish literature, well, you remembered him. I remember still Alan's review of Alan Spence's It's Colours, They Are Fine. Here, he said, at last, was a, a book that um, is deserving of modern Scottish literature. Here was our Dubliners. Well, whether it was or wasn't, was still a remarkable thing. Read William Boyd's review of uh, Alistair Gray's Lanark. These were all pretty formative 
formative things and important in the cycle. Now, people can disregard criticism and say it doesn't matter, but it mm. did matter to me, and it still does matter. Yeah, and um, what do you think is the, uh, the, the... I mean, I think it's interesting to think about the position of the critic as being a sort of middle man or woman mm -hmm. um, between... Um, writers and readers but there are other constituents in the sort of literary sphere or mm. cultural sphere other people with stakes um how do you have a sense that that's changed as uh you know in over the course of your career as a critic say? well i mean the, kind of the, the middleman uh description is sort of almost pejorative mm. and uh, you know I never thought there was a middleman mm. um, for a start as I mentioned earlier many of my favorite writers were uh, eminent and brilliant critics and yeah. um, the, the other thing to say is that many critics are far better writers than writers um, yes. uh, I can think of many writers who couldn't write any criticism but mm. I can think of many critics who could write mm. novels and poems um, and uh, you know, it gave me a great thrill to read, for example, something like Dover Wilson's What Happens in Hamlet. And in some ways, I'd rather read Dover Wilson's What Happens in Hamlet than Hamlet itself. Oh, right. um, the, the problem has been that, um, in general, I think, younger people, and I say that kind of advisedly, have got nicer. Um, and uh, they're not as antsy. They have opinions. They say things or tweet or whatever, but in general, when they move into a public sphere, yeah. they become much more diplomatic and almost shy of voicing what they think is right or wrong about something. And then when they do uh, actually try to develop their thoughts and to make it into a review or, or whatever, it's not particularly well uh, articulated or argued. Right. Um, and that, I think, is what this program is trying to create that yeah. yes we hope that you will have your own opinions now we need to see how you can justify these opinions yeah. and so that is a, a test is there to be a focus sort of on the mechanics of um almost of a review i mean on of its constituent parts or i mean to to what extent do you think that there's a, a sort of paradigmatic uh, version of you know right like a good piece of uh, a good piece of critical writing because mm. um, it strikes me that one of the things that you were saying about that you know about these great names of the great critics or the, the is that they they have such a strong voice of their own that they will break well they'll have their own paradigm and individuals sort of well, I mean, as Robert Louis Stevenson said, for young writers, the first thing that they should do is play the sedulous ape. Uh, <laughs> find somebody they like and see if they can write to that yes. standard. Um, uh, uh, to answer your question about is there a, you know, other exemplars, is there ways to go about it? Well, the first thing to say is that there are certain housekeeping things you can teach people which are yeah. fairly easily um, taken on board. Mm -hmm. Whether people take them on board is another matter. Yeah. And these are to do with... Um, uh, writing to length, uh, writing to deadline, uh, writing in English, uh, reading over carefully uh, what you've written so it's not strewn with errors, and also um, writing for the publication for which you've been asked to write or hope to write right. for, so that, you know, it's pretty silly 
to you know write for um, say Women's Weekly in the same way as you might write for the New York Review of Books. So it might be quite advisable if you are about to write for the New York Review of Books to go and read the New York Review of Books and kind of get some sense of what is acceptable there. And on top of which, you know, when you're putting down things like bibliographic details, to follow their style. Because there's nothing, nothing more irritating to a commissioning editor than for somebody to go off on their own tack. Then, of course, you come to the how do you write something? How do you write a review? And can you actually give somebody a template to do that? Well, yes and no. I mean, to a degree, you can say, well, okay, you need to read the book that you've been asked to review, say, and it might be advisable to read another book or earlier books by the same person, just as much as you've got time for. There's a time constraint in all that. And then the next thing is to say, well, how, what am I being asked for? Well, I'm being asked for my opinion, I'm being asked for a review. And the, you must take guidance from the person who's commissioning it. So he might say, I don't want you to refer to the earlier books, and I don't want you to go for example, online to find out what other people thought of this. And I don't want you to go online, for example, and find out what the author himself thinks of this. Because the author himself is always brilliant at articulating what kind of book they've written. They may not have written that book, but they're always good. What kind of book they might have wanted to write, or they thought that they've written. Exactly. So you ignore all that kind of stuff, and you say, so now you start with this blank piece of paper. And then I would say, give yourself yourself a, a deadline and say, well, I'm starting at 8 o'clock this morning and it will be finished by 2 or 3 in the afternoon, say. yeah, And it's, a hundred, it's a 800 words. Yes, well, which is not all that many words <laughs> when you have to accurately summarise a book. Well, and... absolutely, but uh, to get the balance right, to make it sing, to say something different and uh, interesting and entertaining, because yeah. all writing should entertain to a degree, you can say, well, look, here's a formula. It's 800 words. Let's divide that into eight paragraphs of 100 words each. And each of these paragraphs will have, you know, two or three short sentences, a couple of long sentences, and one, you know, a sort of Lib Dem sentence somewhere in the middle. (laughs) And so you start with that. Think about um, declarative sentences uh, to begin paragraphs to vary things up. Avoid repetition. Um, So don't have the same words cropping up here and there. Uh, Quote judiciously to give us a flavour of the, the writer's style. Um, uh, be careful how much plot you give away or how much plot um, you just want to supply people with. So it's going to be a balance of description and opinion, uh, uh, good, strong personal writing and just uh, a kind of fair reflection of the book. Yes, it strikes me as a, a, a real balancing act, partly because you're wanting to um, balance the writers, what what the writer has been doing versus what the reader mm. is picking up, the right the writer's um, sort of investment and ambition for the book versus the readerly experience. Yes, and um, you know you, you you want to have confidence in your own opinion. You know you want to breed that confidence. Uh, when I first, um, you know, I started writing uh, book reviews uh, for the Scotsman and then uh, for the Herald, and um, the Herald's book pages in those days was one book page, and three of us uh, reviewed weekly for that, one book each weekly, and the reviewers were uh, Alan Bold, a remarkable figure, uh, Douglas Dunn, and myself, and we by and large 
filled those pages. Yeah. And the mainstays of the Scotsman at that time were people like Alan Massey and Robert Nye. Uh, and they uh, did the same kind of thing. And uh, people turned to these pages, they probably should have varied a lot more. And you'll notice there weren't any women there. Yes. Although, is, uh, is, um, uh, the, the, the Scotsman did have a woman whose name uh, just eludes me for a second. But uh, anyway, they, they, uh, they were mainly men and they mainly did it weekly. And um, people got to know who the, right. these people were. They read a lot of books, of course. Yeah. And they, if, for example, for a while, um, if Alan liked a book, Alan Massey, I didn't like it. Because it, there was a sort of... Um, uh, was that a natural give and take, or was it an, a more adversarial... No, it wasn't. No, no, no. Of, I mean, not adversarial exactly, but just a sort of... I mean, in 800 words, you can't say, you know, for, for all the balance and context that you're wanting to bring in, it's... You can't bring bring it all. You no, and it, he he was a very generous reviewer. Alan yeah, uh, is a very generous yeah. reviewer. Um, uh, no, it was just a question of taste, to be honest. Yeah. And and the kind of books that he seemed to like at that stage, um, right. I didn't so much like. Yeah. And the kind of books that he didn't like, in fact, didn't review, right? Uh, because he so didn't like them. I yeah. did like. So there were kind of certain American writers, for example, that Alan just completely ignored. Yeah. But then there were other writers um, that he did like that I loved. Right. Um, so, uh, so, for example, he loved um, Anthony Pohl or Graham Greene or Muriel Spark. I mean, you know, if you don't like these people, you actually uh, don't know what you're talking about. Right. But, but he had great enthusiasm for them. And, you know, when he reviewed the new Graham Greene, I avidly bought the Scotsman to find out what Alan what thought said. of it. And, you know, that was a kind of thrilling thing because you suddenly thought, well, this is OK. I can, you know, um, Alan Massey likes it. I'll, I'll go and read yeah. this book now. And... Um, People talked about it, you know, it was a, the water cooler thing that yes, everybody yeah. would, would be talking to one another on a Saturday afternoon saying, right. did you see what he wrote about that or did you see what right. he wrote about that? And there's this talk. I, I definitely find it exciting when I um, click on a review mm. and then find out who the reviewer is and think about the process that, uh, you know, the editor has gone through of matching the reviewer to the mm. book. Um, which is sort of similar to matching the reader to the book. Yeah, and so of course, you know, in, in back in the day, uh, lots of literary editors had devilment in their soul, and they would try to find somebody they, they would know was completely hostile to right. a, a particular author and uh, just hand it to them, like yeah. handing raw meat to a lion, and, you know, watch them tear it apart. And, you know, we've all done that, and, um, you know, after a while, I guess... You, 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 you get a bit of that out of your system and maybe you become less raw. Um, you know, there was, all, <laughs> there was a great story where um, uh, I think it was involving Norman McCaig and Hugh McDermott and some poor chap had uh, published a book of poems and Norman, unusually for him, reviewed it and gave it a harsh review. Um, it was really just an amateur poet's work. And... Um, the poet wrote into the paper and said, look, you know, that was a bit harsh and completely undeserved and whatever. And there, in normal circumstances, the matter would have ended. But McDermott waded into the thing right. and, and basically <laughs> said, look, Norman wasn't half as harsh as he could have been. And quite yeah. frankly, your book is, uh, should have been destined for the council rubbish tip, never mind whatever. And so thereafter, Norman was so horrified at the pain inflicted on this innocent individual in the boondocks right. somewhere that he stopped reviewing. Gosh, yes. And did the Ferrari at all um, affect sales for the book? 
Yeah, probably. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, generated some interest. I mean, it's it's interesting to think of um, you know how uh, as uh, writers and writers of literature mm. about literature, mm. um, the uh, it it could be a sort of circular conversation. I mean, or or a circumscribed conversation. You know, and it's sort of conversing amongst our you uh-huh. know amongst ourselves. Yeah. But if that happens. In a newspaper, then there are other there are other readers. I mean, they think the public like to watch. Do yeah, the public they like a spat. (laughs) Well, they like a gladiatorial fight, you know, and uh, you know that there were day. Well, the 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 Scottish word for that is flighting, and um, you know the the papers in those days, uh, Scotsman in particular, you know, from time to time it would be as if the page was set on fire. Um, because something had happened, and and uh, you know the public would be engaged, and the two stags would be locking horns uh, to get at each other on a daily yeah. basis. So, that, for example, there was a great battle between Hamish Henderson and uh, Hubert Dermid about folk music. Um, there was a, another one where the Scotsman, uh, in, in the, before a World Cup, uh, published Alan Bold's World Cup poems. Now these were execrable. And they published about 12 of them. Right. And, you know, ordinary readers of the Scotsman said, what on earth is a paper doing publishing this rubbish? Uh, but into this, uh, Cesspit waded McDermott again and said, no, 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 these are a work of genius. And so the pa- pages overflowed with it. And they couldn't have not... Uh, it must have had a wonderful effect on sales. Yeah. So what do you think about... Um uh, the uh, About a sort of current... I mean, what do you think of the current... Does that kind of sorry? Does that sort of um, contentious is you know are there driving issues that people are having a conversation with across with each other across publications no. about now? And what does is that to do with the professionalization of the critic or the way that a critic has to organise their professional life now? Well, I think what's happened in this country is that uh, first of all. Criticism is, is a sort of um, beleaguered uh, profession. Um, and I'm not sure to what degree newspaper editors um, are keen on critics or, or, or are keen on financing critics. Mm. So that is a problem. I mean, back in the day, the Scotsman had two classical music critics. Yeah. Um, you, uh, now uh, it'll have somebody working freelance to do that. When I say they had two classical free, uh, critics, they, they were employed full-time right. on the staff. Um, so those kind of things don't really exist now. There is only one uh, literary editor in Scotland yes. uh, at the moment. Um, and, you know, for a country that purports to be so interested in literacy and literature mm-hmm. and books, well, that is a terrible indictment, really. Um, but the, the, the bigger problem, and I think what this project is trying to address, is, look, you know... Surely, um, this generation uh, who are now coming out of universities and elsewhere um, are probably no less talented than previous right. ones. So why is it that they are uh, finding it difficult to um, find a voice for themselves and become mm. uh, critics? Um, and I think that's what we're trying to find out and to try and help them. Yeah. You know, I mean, f- right from the get Go well. First of all, I wasn't interested in going to university back, and you know, I just thought, 
what a waste of time that is. Um, I still think that actually. Um, and you know, uh, the, the, the key word from Sartre was autodidact. Yeah. You know, you went to the library and you read your way in the fiction section from A to Z. And you didn't discriminate between, oh, I'm reading the classics or whatever. You know, it was only quite late on I thought, well, people um, uh, who are taught this read it chronologically or they say, well, we'll do the 18th century, 19th century, 20th century. Or they have a canon in mind. They have a canon in mind. I mean, I think that's that's one thing that is is interesting in terms of teaching in a university, Mm. which I've done a little bit of. And I noticed that students are very deferential to the canon Mm. um, and um, very much feel like in an age where they're paying, almost paying customers of the university, Mm -hmm. which is... uh, Yeah. um, They want the right commodity, you know, Mm -hmm. which is to have read the classics. But at the same time, um, they also, I mean, you know, that in itself can be, um, it's it's not necessarily the most vibrant way of, um, you know, reading or writing about about literature, but it provides context. So, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting about criticism in newspapers is that it's current mm. it's consistently reviewing um yeah the current production well that's and that's that's the wonderful thing about it and that's what you know we'll be trying to help these critics do i'll be giving the group i'm mentoring new books and saying well you'll be the first person to read this and review it right. so see what you make of it and you know the, the wonderful thing is then is to see who spots something really quite remarkable you know that great Kenneth Tynan review of um, uh, Look Back in Anger, you know, I, I went along the lines of, I don't think I could love someone who didn't love Look Back in Anger. Well, that must have been wonderfully stuff. You do, to read that, to think, or to read Evelyn Walk's review of Muriel Sparks' first book and say, well, you know, I wrote a book similar to this, but this is much better than mine. You know, you think, whoa, that's something else. That really makes the hairs in the back of your neck stand up. And, you know, you, we're all looking for that. You know, we're all looking for something pretty remarkable. I, re- I remember reading right at the beginning Jim Kelman's early work. Mm-hmm. I, I must say it completely confounded me. <laughs> the, the, the only thing I knew was I had never read anything like it before. That's yeah. the only thing I knew. Yeah. You know? And did you feel that you could say that in your review? I mean, uh, one of the questions that occurred to me earlier is to ask is, you know, a critic is, how often is a critic allowed to revise their opinion? Is that, uh, you know, very often I read a columns that say, I was right five years ago when I wrote that, <laughs> blah, 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 you know. Um, but um, how often do you find, does a critic say, I may have misjudged or... Not very often. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not very often. But, it, you know, critics are under quite a lot of pressure. Uh, I mean, if, if, you, if you were doing a book a week, say... Um, to be handed a 500-page thumper, yeah. um, your heart sank because you thought, oh, geez, you know. I mean, the best rule in the world, uh, that would be, say, two days of completely solid reading mm-hmm. plus a day writing a review. So you would be, that would take up three days of your life uh, for which you would not be recompensed at the rate you know, that an ordinary plumber would be expecting to get paid. You know, it's a pleasurable way to spend your life, but it's, it's definitely not... Uh, financially viable it's well below the minimum wage um, but you know that's not what we were doing 
Um, and you know, I, I, I've have I revised my opinion about lots of books? Not really, actually. I mean, I've given lots of bad reviews to many prominent Scottish writers, and with one or two tiny exceptions, um, I think you know I could have been kinder. You know, maybe kinder would have been the better thing mm -hmm. to have been. Um, but, you know, there's other cases where <laughs> I reviewed one notable Scottish writer's book and an MP came up to me at the Edinburgh International Book Festival and he said, that book sounds so awful, I've just bought a copy. <laughs> <laughs> In some kind of masochist yeah. pleasure? Or <laughs> go, for, go for it, you know. Yeah. But then, of yeah. course... Just to get angry, maybe. <laughs> just to get angry. Or just to disagree with me. Yeah. But, but the, the thing was also that, you know, there are, for example... You know, what interests me in a book might not interest somebody else. Right. And so I'm much more interested in style above almost anything. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested in how a book is written. I don't really care about the plot. I don't really care about the setting. I don't care about when it's set. Um, I don't care too much about the characters. I hate it when people talk about themes. I hate it when people talk about, is a character likeable? You know, I... Uh, I hate all these kind of things. Right. I, 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 you know, I cherish the wonderful moment at the Edinburgh Book Festival when Muriel Spark was asked by a young woman in the audience, had one of her characters in one of her books ever sort of, you know, run away with themselves and become yes. something more than Muriel? Their own life? Uh -huh. And Muriel said, "How would that happen? How would that happen?" People seem to forget that writers are meant to be in control. Yes. Yeah, so certainly, I mean, you will hear a lot of um, talk about this, the sort of almost mystical experience mm. of having your, of, of writing. I, I think that one of the things is, though, that that can happen to you as a critic as well, though, interesting. Mm. I mean, I'm not saying that, <laughs> um, uh, that you can get so deeply into, there, there can be a moment in trying to write about a, a piece of mm. text where you suddenly understand how it's been constructed how that yes. web has worked mm. and that's that's always a really i think that i find that a deeply pleasurable moment you think aha yes well, <laughs> and then the question becomes is you know it do, does it work or not or how long did it take me to get to this point or well i mean know. all these things have kind of changed you know and the, and the way that you would construct them have changed you know, with the reviews with a novel is that you know you always think the review could be better than it, that it turned out or it didn't turn out exactly as you want it to turn out although it's a good idea to make notes and to kind of slightly plan it and all the rest of it but um you know that that these are sort of regrets and um you know it's never going to be perfect um you know i often found something running away from me rather than towards me and it's, I, I don't know. Like in terms of a line of argument. Yes. Yeah. Or I've, something I thought was absolutely central to say, and then I've got to the end of the review and I've not said it. Um, and also, you know, uh, you know, I, I sort of prize cl clarity above almost everything, so that mm. by the time somebody's read something that I've written, hopefully there's nothing in there that yes. can make them scratch their head and saying, well, what's he trying to say? Uh, has he trying yes. to say? It? And partly, I think, I was helped early on because I couldn't type um, and so uh, for about the first five or six years I was writing working as a journalist I hand wrote everything and my then wife typed it or sent it in and it was only with the advent of these computers and 
after you know I began to type, I realised you you know you had to to do things um, properly. And did that produce? But you're, it seems to be you're saying that writing produced great writing by hand produced mm. greater precision in your thoughts. Of course it does because. You know, if you're writing by hand, the last thing you want to have to do is, is go back and do it again. Yeah. Um, so you have to think quite hard what you mm. want to say. And the, you know, I was writing not just reviews, but interviews and uh, commentary right. pieces and all, you name it. Um, uh, you know, but I, I, I thought that was a very good discipline to have. And um, you know, if people liked it, they say, "Well, that was extraordinarily clear." You know, whatever. But you know. I, I take my lead from Muriel Spark and all things. <laughs> Muriel, you know, if you look at her notebooks of her novels, they were yes. handwritten. Yes. There is barely a crossing out in any of them. Mm. That shows a mind that's thinking clearly. You know, you can revise it later when it gets into print or change a word or two. Right. But it's now, what do I do? You know, I'm writing a piece for the TLS, um, 1,200 words, which I've been doing the last couple of days. You know, I'm constantly changing words all yes. the time, all the time. I find I've repeated something, you know, I've not said something as clearly as I'd like to say it or as funnily or I've thought of something better. You know, I really wrote better and quicker when I was younger. So to get back, to, yeah, to get back to the idea of um, sort of uh, f future uh, criticism, mm. Um, you're going to be mentor that the emerging critics mentors mm. are going to be working with um, writers in small groups mm. and um, are, are you interested are you interested in sort of fostering a collaborative I mean in, in, there'll be workshops I suppose so that they will be collaborative um, experiences well, yeah but I I'm curious about how you know it seems that te the technology that we have now is meant to foster um, conversations and one of the dangers Jeez. is that all we do is say the same thing hmm. I like this book you know I, that it's the same com that there's only one conversation or you know, uh, and there's a sort of homogeneity so um, do you have some, do you have thoughts on whether uh, you know the future of criticism is in some way more collaborative or God no, no. <laughs> I mean, you know uh, maybe, maybe the, the, the death of criticism is more mm. collaborative you know right. this is not kind of you know, making a movie or, or writing songs or something like this with sort of John Lennon and Paul McCartney in the same room, one adding a line or two to something like that. Right. No, not at all. And I'm not really, you know, I'm going to deal with, I'm not dealing with a group, although I think once or twice... People, oh, you will people, meet. People, oh, so you will meet more individually. People will, uh, you know, two or three in a group. But, I mean, basically I'm going to be, you know, w once we're over the first hurdle and I've seen, well, I have got um, yeah. some examples of people's work, you know, I'll be dealing with people individually and, um, you know, uh, pretty much the same way as I did it in, in uh, the newspaper world, that uh, I would sit there with somebody and say, well, this is what you've written, you could get rid of that, you could change that, you could make this, whatever. Because I firmly believe that at the end of something, if, the pe if I think I've improved it and they can't see it, there's a problem. Right. Yeah. So if I say, look, if if you did this with that sentence and yeah. made it like this, would you think it's better? And if they either I'm useless, or they've got no ear, right? And so, you know, that would be a problem. Mm -hmm. But you know, I've worked with so many people, um, 
uh, young, you know, people who are younger than me. When I started out, I, I was a bit slightly older than some people, and I was put into a position in a national newspaper yeah. within days of being yes. in it, of running, you know, people in every department. And so you had to stand up for yourself, and you had to be able to say to everybody from theatre reviewers to book reviewers to football writers to commentary writers to say, look, if you sit down and I'll show you how I, I'll show you how I can make this better. And you know, by and large, all agreed. They, yeah. they would they would they would see it and they would say, Yeah, yeah, that is better. Or yes, if you take that out, that will be better. Right. You know? And hopefully that will dawn on them. And people themselves, you know, none of us is above being edited. No. You know, I hate being edited. And I think one of the things that's interesting about the editorial process is it seems to be I mean, one one reader talking to one right. I mean, so it's often a one-on-one, one-to-one process. And I, I worry. I wonder if we're sort of killing criticism by committee or something. I don't know. No, no, I don't think so. I think it's an invigorating thing. Yeah. And uh, you know, you're writing so many words. I don't know how many words I've written over the last forty years, but it's millions. Mm. It's a ridiculous number of words. And you know, well, first of all, you hope that an editor will save you from your worst sins. Yes. But also, you know, you know, we all write things that, you know, could be improved or mm. questioned. You know, I remember I, I once interviewed John Updike and um, I asked him, you know, was he still being edited by The New Yorker? He said, well, what do you think? Of course I am. Yes. And I'm grateful. And these publications have the time and the staff still to submit the writing to a sort of rigorous editorial process I mean is that something that's being squeezed then yeah without a doubt it is um, you know uh, they, they, they did it to a degree that was almost stultifying yeah. you know um, and had people like Tom Wolfe or Norman Mailer um, you know mocking them because there was a there was an obvious New Yorker style or type of yeah. story mm-hmm. and they had their own kind of intonation or uh, vocabulary and grammar and all the rest of it you know, and I can exactly see what they, they mean. Yeah. Um, and the New Yorker should have probably loosened its stays a bit and, and let people in mm-hmm. who were obviously much more individual than they. Having said that, you know, they published a, a huge number of fantastic writers. Um, so they must have been doing something right. But I remember Alistair Reid, who wrote for the New Yorker for 50 yes. years. You know, Alistair used to rather enjoy the editorial uh, mill process when a, when a piece was. Uh, going to to press and um you know he rejoiced in telling uh, the story about arguing with william sean the then editor um as the press was about to go still arguing over the relative merits of a colon over a semicolon and uh, you know for half an hour the presses weren't rolling as the pair of them tried to batter it out it's good to have people who ready to go to the wall for that absolutely to butt heads so uh, the new yorker is obviously a large um international publication mm. really now um but i know i see that in this current brand new edition of the scottish review of books you have written a piece about two of scotland's very small um literary magazines yeah uh, jerry cambridge's dark horse and um the chapman joyce um, henry's joy henry's joy henry's chapman yeah um and um do you see that i which print publications and jerry jerry cambridge's book is you know a material very much um a material object his Mm. typography is really um 
is one you know the typography is one of its sort of strengths mm. and mm. Um, interests uh, so um, do you see uh, small print magazines um, print criticism I mean these are the, these seem to combine fiction and non uh, mm. fiction poetry mm. particularly yeah. um, with criticism yeah. now it's it's is that a way of um, having the creative writers in with <laughs> well it was always the, the case you know I mean, yeah good good little magazines as they're called mm. um, always did that kind of thing you know there's nothing new about what Jerry's doing or what I'm doing or what anybody else is doing really um, you, you, you what you have to have with a small magazine yeah. any kind of magazine actually is um, you know a one line sentence about what its purpose is what its raison d'etre is um, magazines fail when uh, people can't quite make up their minds what they are so they, they then have no audience you know it's like when Boots the Chemist uh, instead of selling aspirin starts selling sandwiches you think well <laughs> is this a chemist or is it a right. sandwich shop I don't or is read... it a toy shop or is it a I toy mean, shop so, so I, I'm yeah. confused you know I, the idea that I might buy a sandwich from Boots is just you know because I might think it's stuff full of uh, aspirins yes. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that you know if you're a, a magazine editor, you must mm. be clear about what it's about. Yeah. And Jerry uh, Cambridge's magazine is uh, uh, well was a, a Scottish American poetry magazine right. with criticism as part of its remit. Chapman, um, which was an astonishing thing to kind of keep going for 110 Tennessee. issues, yeah. you know, was was a kind of. Uh, uh, just a rattle bag of stuff it just it was like a gladstone bag packed full of stuff and in fact it kind of you know epitomized uh, mcdermott's uh, um, phrase about himself that you know his job wasn't to lay tits eggs but to sort of <laughs> erupt like a volcano and to, to degree chapman did that you know you would get 120 pages and some of it would be rubbish and then suddenly you would come across you know six pages of sorry mclean's poems or, yeah. you know, um, you would get whole plays in there. Uh, you'd get writers who were making their first flush and then established writers. So it was an incredible thing. And it was all really run by, you know, Joy Henry herself, which I find absolutely astonishing. And she was probably setting the thing, typing yeah. the pieces in. Um, and, you know, completely undernourished. Uh, of course, we got some state funding, but state funding just keeps you just just about on that line before starvation sets in yes. you know and so this country is really bad for a literary country a world city of literature it is really bad at funding these things you know it doesn't have the sort of sophisticated level it needs to have you know the Americans little magazines are usually funded extraordinarily well by philanthropic people yes. or by major academic institutions who understand the, the kind of um, where they stand in the cultural um, ecology yes I um, it's interesting the emerging critics program is um, fun has been funded by mm. um, Creative Scotland um, but also by some other trusts yes. as well and it does seem that there are a large number. I mean, there, there are groups who have answered, you know, have answered this call to subsidise. They have, but I mean, look, this this is a quarterly. The, the Scottish Review of Books is a quarterly publication. Right. Say thirty-two pages every quarter. 
you know, we can only scratch the surface of stuff that needs proper critical attention. There's hardly any theatre criticism in this country beyond what happens on a first-night basis. There's hardly any serious music criticism. There's a pathetic level of art criticism, and there's not the voices out there that are exciting enough um, to make people think, I, I, I want to engage with this, I want to get involved with this. Uh, and these voices themselves are not telling the reader or the viewer of a painting or whatever um, things that they themselves can't see. So we need people who can do that, who can look at, I don't know, a John Bellany painting and tell you why it's as good as a Picasso or not. Um, or is James Macmillan as good as Mozart? Or is Henry Rayburn as good as, um, I don't know, um, Rembrandt? Yeah. And it seems that um, people have, Reese audiences have more and more come to sort of take that, get that kind of, um, to hear those voices such as, yeah. they, such as they still exist um, through the television and the radio, which is a sort of non-paying format. Um, Both of these are awful. Um, you know, the, the kind of intellectual level, never mind television, because that's always been pretty grim, and especially grim in Scotland, where you can't actually get a proper television programme made. You know, an hour-long programme without a writer, artist, musician. It's almost impossible to get that made. Um, but the intellectual level of radio has dropped so dramatically that it's almost painful. Um, the, the, the idea that you could, you know, back years ago, I used to do kind of like half hour to hour long interviews with writers. You know, Hilary Mantel, you know, mm. um, Beryl Bainbridge, William Boyd, all these people. And where would you go to get that now? Well, Melbourne, Brown. <laughs> yes, at nine o'clock on Radio yeah. Four. But I think that um, I think that uh, one of uh, you know, as as someone who I graduated um, in as, as an undergraduate in two thousand and three, so I am now aging myself. Um, but uh, which was a time when. Um, Everything and I started reading everything on the internet. Mm. All the journalism that I've read as mm. as a postgraduate mm. has been um, online, um, and I have at times subscribed to newspapers mm. and at other times not. Mm. And um, uh, one of the things that I um, do support and I supported while a student was um, a podcasting conglomerate called mm. Radiotopia, uh, where people are it's American so it's funded by foundations mm. initially but um, there's a culture there that has flourished on the internet of um, nerddom and geeking mm -hmm. out that prizes the detail and really prizes knowledge mm -hmm. um, and I think that, that my hope is you know my, my own response was yes I must fund this because the level is high well, I think, and I can see the, the validity of it, and I, I can see, for example, you, you know, four or five intelligent people read a book and they discuss mm. it, hopefully not in a way that these awful readers groups do, you know, but that's, right. that's a right. possibility. But, I mean, you know, the kind of, if you want me to make a case for newspapers and printed newspapers, I'm quite happy to do so, mm. because it seems to me 
that um, the problems of uh, internet reading and yeah. online reading is is a completely unrounded way of going about things. That you know when when you know if you've been inside a newspaper and you start work at nine o'clock in the morning and at nine o'clock at night fifty four or fifty six pages have to be filled. Yeah. You know it gives you a pretty good idea about what the contents are of a newspaper, and what they are are absolutely remarkable. In those 56 pages, you have the entire world of that day. Yeah. The entire world of that day, from international and national and local politics, to the arts, to fashion, to features, to opinions, mm-hmm. to sport, to business, to obituaries, to the weather, to the crossroads, yeah. everything. And if you were like me, you know, the kind of person who read all that, by the time you'd read that newspaper, you were pretty well up on things. Yeah. Pretty well up on things. Now, I think people are pretty well up on the things that interest them. The yeah. tangential stuff, the stuff in the margins, mm-hmm. they haven't a clue. They haven't a clue. I haven't a clue. I subscribe to the New York Times every day. I read about four or five articles. Well, I know for a fact that the New York Times runs to about 50 pages every day. Yeah. So what am I not reading? Most of the newspaper. Right, and because you're not opening the newspaper and going page yeah. by page and scanning all the headlines. And there know, was a time where, for example, yeah. newspapers, when they went online, you know, she used to show you the front, the pages mm. as they'd been composed. Mm, because yeah. that in itself is an art. Yeah. Um, that Where you place stories, how much prominence you give them, what kind of headlines you write on them, yeah. uh, what the captions are and all the rest of it, it's all part of the texture. Yeah. All part of the texture. And a literary magazine does the same thing I mean, it reflects a world because literature is because what we put in books is sort of all encompassing anyway. Is that I mean, how does uh, well, I don't I you mean, see, with, with, do you not is that would you draw I mean, do you draw a distinction between a newspaper and a lit? Um, yeah, actually, that's not a very good way of putting a question. I mean, I think. You know, should we are we giving up on newspapers then? Well, should think, we be fighting for more pages? Should pages be sponsored? What are the ways of you know? Well, I mean, you know, newspapers have given up on themselves to a degree. Yeah. Um, you know, there's not much you can do about the public if they don't want to buy your newspaper. But if you provide you know, produce newspaper. good newspapers, my belief is that people would still buy them and read them and get mm. engaged in them. Yeah. But if if you give people an excuse not to buy them, they'll take that excuse. Yes. And that, to me, is an extremely sad thing. But there's, there's damn all I can do about it. You know, I'd co- well, I was going to say I would happily edit a newspaper now. But <laughs> no, I wouldn't. Um, because I think the constraints on the editors are, um, yeah, you know, too severe. And, um, you know, when uh, to become a national newspaper editor, uh, when I was actually in newspapers, say, 15, 20 years ago, was a seriously big job and it was a very public job and that um, you know government ministers would phone you up and hope you got the job and all that kind of stuff now nobody can name who these people are right. they haven't a clue who they are and it might change fairly frequently yeah they change like football managers and you know because they're not public figures um, they're not out there articulating what their newspapers stand for or what they're doing and therefore the public can't identify mm. with it so Um, now, is there anything else that we should talk about? We've been talking for a while. You better watch my time, actually. Yes, I um, don't want to keep so you. It's no, half past two. I think, so. I think that's 
it's quite a good thing for a start. Because yeah. I think what, what one should talk 